Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 20? Revelation 20. Now, last week, as oftentimes happens, I ran out of time and didn't wasn't able to finish what I was trying to get across. So we're going to have to kind of pick that up. Uh, so why don't we look at verse 6? We'll start there, do a little review, then get right into what we were talking about last time, but... Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Remember now, the first resurrection is not a single event, but a category for all true believers who have ever lived upon the earth who will be resurrected, starting with Jesus, then before the, the, uh, before the tribulation period starts, the church will be resurrected, I believe. Then at the end of the tribulation period, you have... Uh, Old Testament saints and tribulation saints, and um, then during the millennial kingdom, the uh, millennial kingdom saints. But they're all a part of the first resurrection. Again, not a single event, a category uh, that will deal with all saved people that have ever lived. They will be resurrected, not all at once, as we said last time, but in order, in order. And over these, Paul uh, uh, John says, over such... All who take part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And again, we're just reviewing, but the second death is referring to the final judgment of all unbelievers in the lake of fire. As we said numerous times, all true believers, whether they're Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, tribulation saints or millennial kingdom saints will be a part of the first resurrection and all unbelievers will be a part of the second of these two resurrections the resurrection that jesus called the resurrection of condemnation remember he talked about two resurrections in john 5 the resurrection of the righteous he called the resurrection of life and then the resurrection of the unsaved he called the resurrection of condemnation right john 5 uh, 5 verses 28 and 9 those who take part in this final resurrection not the first but the final which deals with all unbelievers this will take place at the end of the millennial kingdom we'll study that more in detail next time okay but those who take part in this final resurrection will be cast into the lake of fire otherwise known as the second death. Look at Revelation 21, verse 8. I'll read it to you out of the NLT second edition. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And again, guys, God has promised that whoever belongs to the first resurrection. Again, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, tribulation saints, millennial kingdom saints, on these, the second death will have no power. Or in other words, upon these, uh, these first resurrection saints, they will never be cast into hell. So just use the church as an example, okay? So we're going to be resurrected at the rapture, which I believe will take place before the Antichrist is revealed and the tribulation period officially begins, all right? Any believer uh, in the church uh, age that gets, uh, gets um, resurrected, you know, at the rapture, well, they're going to have their glorified bodies. They're never going to sin again. And, of course, because of all of that, they're saved for eternity. They're never going to be cast into hell, okay? Um, so that's just, you know, a promise God made to us. And, and last week we got off on the subject of hell, because this is what this section is dealing with, okay? And we talked a little bit about it. Let me continue, pick it up. Uh, so let me just start with the basic question. What is hell? What is hell? Well, the Bible says that hell is a place of perpetual burning. Perpetual burning. The Greek word is Gehenna. Gehenna. Which comes from the Hebrew Gehinnom. Which literally means the valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom is a deep, narrow valley directly south of Jerusalem. In fact, if you were standing on the most southern part 
of the city, which is up on a hill, you would look over, you would see below the Valley of Hinnom. This was a very significant place in Israel's history. Why? Well, it was there that when the Jews really fell into apostasy, they practiced one of the most horrendous things they've ever practiced in their history, and that is where they burned their infant children to the god Molech. Molech was the god of pleasure. And of course, when people are given over to uh, wicked pleasure, sex becomes uppermost. People want to have sex, want to have sexual pleasure. They don't want to live with the consequences. And so all this uh, free sex, what was going on, they, they worship pagan deities through orgies. That's what the big attraction was to paganism. A lot of these fertility gods and goddesses, the Baals and the Asterisks, were worshipped through sexual orgies. So all this, this free love was taking place, sexual promiscuity, and that led to a lot of unwanted pregnancies. Well, what do you do with these kids? Uh, we don't want them. So they created, uh, they actually didn't invent this. This was a, a pagan thing. But they would sacrifice their infant children to the god Molech. Again, Molech was the god of pleasure, okay? And uh, this was a god that they made out of brass because it could be heated, red hot. And the god Molech was made with its arms extended. And then it was placed into, in a fire pit. And it, the fire was lit. And as the fire was, was going and growing, it would cause the brass, uh, 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 the image of Molech, to begin to um, radiate uh, red hot. And you've got to imagine now there's drums going on and there's chanting and people are working themselves up into a, uh, into a, um, uh, a false sense of, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, alter state of consciousness, thank you, where they're actually going into a kind of a trance-like state, and no doubt there was alcohol or some other drugs involved, and they would whip themselves up until uh, they were screaming and mourning and, and all this stuff, screaming, really, and then at the height of it all, the drums beating, people screaming, they would lay their infant children in the red-hot arms of Molech, and all the screaming among the people would drown out the babies screams of agony this was the most horrific and god eventually well pretty much right away condemned the whole thing by saying never at any time did i ever command you to sacrifice your children to me nor did it ever even come into my mind it was so horrendous and this is where they sacrificed their children in this valley of hinnom to the god molech Later on, after this practice was outlawed, this valley became the city dump where the dead bodies of animals and even criminals and other all kinds of garbage was dumped and burned by a fire that was never quenched because the refuse never ended. And the places that weren't on fire because of all the dead carcasses were infested with worms. That's the visual picture. And so in the process of time, this place became a fitting image and illustration of the place of everlasting fire and burning known as hell. A place where, as one person said, the wretched refuse of defiled humanity who refused to receive the love of the truth, the gospel, that they would be saved are dumped. It's the final dumping ground of all unbelievers who refuse God's grace, God's love, reaching out to them to, to come to me. As God said through the prophet Ezekiel, turn, why, turn from your sins. Why will you die? I get no pleasure out of the death of the wicked. Come to me. Yet they kept swatting his hands away, so to speak. They kept on in their sin. This is going to be the final place where these people are dumped. And they're going to experience, are going to endure the perpetual fires of judgment forever and ever. As Revelation 14, verse 11 says, the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Now, Jesus believed that hell was a real place, eternal place. In fact, he stated three times in Mark chapter 9 that hell was a place where, according to the Lord, the fire is never quenched and where the worm 
never dies. And that last statement, where the worm never dies, indicates that this is going to be a place of eternal torment. There are those who believe in, in annihilationism, that there is no eternal torment or suffering in hell. That when a person is cast into the lake of fire, when they hit the fire, they burn up, they go out of existence. But by Jesus saying where the worm never dies, if there was no body to feed on, the worm would, would die, right? If there was no carcasses, the worms would not be there. The idea is that Jesus is saying this is a place where there is perpetual suffering. It never ends. People never go out of existence. This is the place that the unbelievers will eventually uh, be thrown into. And guys, again, Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else in the New Testament. In fact, the word Gehenna appears 12 times in the New Testament and all but 11, all but one time. So 11 times Jesus is the one who talked about it. The other one being James 3, verse 6. And so hell, or the lake of fire, is a place of separation from God. See, people don't want God. A lot of folks living today, unbelievers, of course, uh, they want nothing to do with God. And so God is going to give them their desire by separating them from himself for all eternity. That, that's, the, that's the idea. God wanted them to be his children. God sent his son to die that they might become members of his family. But they loved their sin more than they loved God. They loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Therefore, God's going to give them darkness forever. They love it so much, they want nothing to do with God. Fine. Then you will have your desire in hell for all eternity and we said last time that the lake of fire or hell uh, is in the outer darkness Jesus told us that what does that mean probably a place so far out in the universe no light reaches it probably a burning star that doesn't burn that burns in a uh, with a chemical compound that doesn't give off light we talked about that that's that there are substances that will burn very hot. Somebody was telling me after that message that they went to a NASCAR race one time which they burned nitro. And nitro is on fire, but you can't see any light, can't see any flame. You see the, radi the heat radiating, but you don't see a flame. There's no light. Some things burn like that. There's no light given off. But guys, this again is where the ungodly will someday be sent and experience the righteous judgment of God for all the ungodliness and sin they committed throughout the course of their life on the earth. Guys, we've talked about this before, but all sin is considered to be a crime against a holy God, and those crimes must be paid for. Some people who don't understand the holiness of God want to say, well, why did Jesus have to die? All right, we blew it. Why couldn't God just say, well, let's just have a do I'll give you a do-over. Well, let's, let's try this, this all over again. That's because God is a holy, righteous God. All sin has to be paid for. It has to be punished. If a person won't receive payment through the blood of Christ shed on Calvary's cross for their sins, then they will have to spend eternity paying for those th sins in hell themselves. That's what the Bible says. It's a, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God without Christ. Terrifying thing. Judgment is terrifying. I mean, it, it, the coming judgment people don't realize is going to be so horrific, so terrifying, and it won't be a 10-year sentence and then you're out. There won't be any probation and maybe you get released early. This will be forever endeavor, endeavor. No rest day or night for all eternity. I mean, if people would just stop to think about that, unbelievers, maybe they would fear enough to get their life right with God. Well, should we want them to come to Christ out of fear? I don't care what brings them to Jesus. The love of God, the fear of God, I, I don't care. Let's just get them saved. Now, I want you to understand this because I, I know that you do. We've talked about this before. It's a lot of people who believe that a person gets into heaven because of all the good things they've done. 
And a person is thrown into hell because of all the bad things they've done. That is absolutely untrue. A person doesn't get cast into hell because they've done a lot of bad things. They have, but that's not why they get cast into hell. They get cast into hell because they've rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. Just like we don't get into heaven because we've been wonderful people that have worked hard all our lives, you know, serving God. No, that's not what saves us. What saves us is believing in Jesus Christ as our Savior. The rest, hell, heaven, will determine, first of all, hell, the degree of punishment people will go through in hell. Not, not what gets them there, but once they are there because they've rejected Christ, the degree of punishment they're going to endure for all the sins they've committed on the earth, yeah, they come into play then. And heaven will be a place where the faithful will be rewarded for how faithful and how much they've served Jesus in this life. But again, we're there because we believe in Jesus, received him as our Savior, right? Now, look, uh, we're talking about hell, and of course, if you talk to unsaved people about hell, they'll, they'll come at you with several different questions, uh, really veiled accusations, but okay. How could a God of love, no doubt you've heard this, you guys talk about God being a God of love. Well, the question unbelievers often ask is, how could a God of love create a place like hell to send people to if he's really a God of love, he wouldn't throw people in hell. First of all, God didn't create hell for man. Amen. Right? We know that. Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 41, he's talking about how the parable of the um, sheep and the goats. And uh, then the king, of course, speaking of God himself, then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into eternal fire prepared, listen, for the devil and his angels. Hell was not made for man. Hell was made for the ultimate rebel, Satan, Lucifer, and all the angels in heaven that followed him in his rebellion against God. So hell was made for Lucifer, the devil, and his angels, fallen angels. But if a person wants to follow the devil in this life, if they want to be a rebel like Lucifer was and is a rebel, then they're going to follow him all the way to his final place of torment. And folks, that won't be God's fault. It will be theirs. Number two, how could a God of love send anyone to a place like hell? Well, number two, God doesn't send anyone to hell. People choose to go there. Romans 2, why don't you turn to it quickly. Romans 2, starting with verse 5, where Paul says, But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 8, He will pour out His anger and wrath on those who live for themselves. Listen, those who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness i read a little it's not really a story but kind of an exchange i'll read it to you it says uh oh you preachers make me sick a fellow said to a witnessing christian on the train one day the christian assured him he was not a preacher i don't care what you are you christians are always talking about a man going to hell because adam sinned no the Christian said, you need not go to hell because Adam sinned. You will go to hell because you refuse the remedy provided for Adam's sin. Don't keep complaining about something that has absolutely been taken care of by, of course, the Lord himself. If you go to hell, you will go over the broken body of Jesus Christ who died to keep you out, end quote. People want to live in rebelling against God, then blame God for being an unloving God because people go to hell. People that want, apparently, to go to hell, right? Nobody goes to hell by chance. They go to hell by choice. And I know a lot of skeptics would at this point jump in and say, that's ridiculous. Nobody would choose to go to hell. 
But Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're what? Against me. May I paraphrase? If you are not for me, you are by default against me. So there's no neutrality, right? The atheist can't say, well, I'm neutral. I don't go for any of this stuff. If you're not for Christ, if you're not a believer saved by putting your faith in Jesus, you are by default his enemy. Because, of course, we were born with sin on our souls. A fallen nature that is in rebellion against God. He loves us, sent his son to die for us, so that when we accept Christ, he immediately gives us a new nature. We're a new creation, right? And now we have a heart that wants to live for him, praise him, worship him, and so on. But anybody who is not a born-again Christian is by default an enemy of God. The Bible says that very clearly. Again, how could a God of love send anyone to such a horrible place like hell? Well, number three, I'll give you one more. How could a God of love? Well, God is a God of love, but he's also a righteous and just God. Here's the problem with a lot of people today. They want to dissect God. They want to take the parts of his nature that appeal to them as love, as mercy, as grace. And then they want to reject all the things about God's nature that they are not so excited about. His holiness, his righteousness, his justice, and so on. You know, it's like God is some kind of a smorgasbord. You know, I saunter up to the table and pick all the stuff I like and leave all this stuff I don't like. You can't dissect God. You, you have to take him for who he is, right? God is a God of love. That is so true. We love that about the Lord. He's a, such a God of love. He's also a righteous and a just God. You remember the story uh, in Genesis 18, where three strangers come one day, and uh, Abraham was, uh, you know, in his tent the heat of the day, right, trying to stay cool in the shade. And he sees these three men just appear. I mean, you, you can see for miles in the desert. All of a sudden, there's three guys practically on his doorstep. He gets all excited, tells Sarah to quick whip up some pancakes. Read the story. <laughs> um, and they start talking, and... He doesn't know who they are. We're told that it was two angels and a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so at one point the Lord says to the two angels, shall we tell our friend Abraham why we're here? And the Lord proceeded to tell Abraham, it's because of the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, that whole area actually, it's because the wickedness of Sodom has come up to the throne of God and God can no longer extend, I'm paraphrasing, extend grace and mercy because they're not coming around. They're not getting saved. And so they have come to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And at that point, the two angels leave to start making their way towards Sodom. The Lord stays back and Abraham begins to haggle. is a Jew, typically Jewish thing, right? Uh, haggle because he knows his nephew Lot and his family is in Sodom and so you, you can read the story well Lord I mean should not the Lord of all the earth the righteous judge of all the earth do what's right if there were 50 righteous in the city would you destroy for the sake of the 50 I will spare for the sake of the 50 what about 40 I'll spare for the sake of the 40 what about 30 <laughs> would you believe 20 I mean, that kind of thing I think he got down to 10, right? What if there were 10 righteous in the city? Would you destroy it for the sake of the 10? Will you spare it? Yes, I'll spare it for the sake of the 10. Well, there wasn't 10. There was a lot. And maybe his wife. His kids were off the wall, right? But what, what Abraham said to the Lord, very true. Should not the, the Lord of all the earth, the righteous judge of all the, the earth, should he not do what's right? Well, of course he should. God always does what's right. That's why he is the righteous judge of all the earth, right? And God has to punish sin. Or else he would no longer be the righteous judge of all the earth. The problem today is that people have become so jaded. 
by all the immorality and godlessness going on around them, listen, that they feel, to them, they feel that sin is really no big deal anymore. Get that impression when you watch TV? Hopefully you don't watch too much, and then you're very selective. The immorality is just mind-blowing. It's breathtaking how they flaunt sin on TV today. We, besides watching the Hallmark Station once in a while, and, uh, and uh, when they shows that where they rip down stuff and rebuild it, that's about it. And the news. Okay, that's all I got. And that's fine with me. But <laughs> because sin is so rampant in our culture, people have been so desensitized, they don't think it's a big deal anymore. It has to be something pretty heinous, like a guy driving his car through a parade at Christmas time in Wisconsin and killing a whole bunch of people, including a, a group of grandmas that were in the parade singing and dancing. That, that gets the attention for about 20 minutes because the guy was of the wrong political part. Was, wasn't, you know, he was, uh, <laughs> their, their political party belonged to that one, so the news media then laid low as soon as they found the details. But here's the thing. Because people have been so jaded by sin that they don't take sin seriously anymore. Our, all our sitcoms laugh at sin. That desensitizes people. Makes them think that sin is a joke. It's no big deal. And because of it, here's where they make, a, many of them, make a fatal mistake. Because sin is no longer a big deal in their mind, they think it's no longer a big deal in God's mind. He really doesn't care. Be careful to do something about it. Here's the thing. He's ambivalent. That's bad enough. Or he agrees with it. That's the ultimate sin and self-deception. You see people parading through the streets, flaunting sin. A lot of those people claim to believe in God. I've heard them say if Jesus were alive today, he'd be a homosexual. What's his name? Uh, Playboy fame? Uh, Hefner. Hefner? I saw him on a program one time where he was debating a Christian. And he said to the Christian, it was Josh McDowell, said to the Christian, if Jesus was alive today, he'd be part of the Playboy family. And I thought, you are a very deceived, wicked man. To say that the Lord Jesus Christ would be a part of the Playboy family. Pornography, sin, uh, promiscuousness. This is where we are, though. I've heard people say that Jesus was a homosexual. Because they don't know him. They don't read the Bible. And they have invented for us, themselves a God of their own making. You know, it was... Um, a famous apologist, Schaefer, Francis Schaefer, who said years ago, in the beginning, God made man in his image. And now man has returned the favor and is making God in man's image. Man who is soft on sin, wants to justify immorality, and basically say that either God doesn't care or he approves. Very sad. And so a lot of folks think that sin's a joke. It's no big deal. Oh, maybe murder, rape, those kinds of sins that, okay, he cares about those kind of things. But certainly he doesn't care about lying or coveting or fornicating or adultery or homosexuality. Quickly, turn to Revelation 21. I think we just were there, but let me read it to you again. I want to show you something. A lot of folks, and I was raised in the Catholic Church. In the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church divided sins into um, venial and, um, I'm sorry? Mortal. mortal. Thank you. My mind isn't too sharp today. Venial and mortal. Venial, forgivable, mortal, you're done. That's a great disservice to people. Because it gives people the impression, as long as you stay away from the big sins, you know, the murder, the bank robberies, the rape, God doesn't really care about those little white lies. 
and things like that. But in Revelation 21, verse 8, which we just read, notice what God said. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, that would cover a whole gamut. The Greek word is porneia. We get the word pornography from that Greek word, and it covers all kinds, all sexual sins, perversions. The sorcerers, idolaters, and what? All? Oh, it doesn't say only the ones that give those big whopper lies. But the little white ones, he overlooks those. All liars will have their part in the lake of fire. So this is God saying to us, all sin is an affront to God. Sure, there's some sins that we would deem uh, more wicked than others. When you're talking about a holy, righteous, pure God, any sin's an affront to his character. Any sin has to be punished. Even lying. Even lying. That one, that gets us all where we live. So, you know. But guys, here, here's the thing. Just because God doesn't rain fire down from heaven, every time someone sins against him, people have gotten the idea that God really doesn't care how they live down here. Again, that's absolutely untrue. Here's some of the verses that you don't find in those promise uh, books. You know, the promises of God, you know, those, we've given them out. I'm not putting them down. Uh, but these, you know, books of promises found in the Bible. You won't find Psalm 7, verses 11 to 13 in one of those promise books. Let me read it to you. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword, bend his bow, and make it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. And you can read that whole uplifting psalm on your own. Of course, I'm joking because all God's word is important that we understand. Again, we're all guilty of gravitating towards the passages that make us feel good inside. God loves me. God's merciful. He's gracious. He, he overlooks sins if we will just repent and get it right with him. He won't hold it against us. He'll wipe the slate clean again. And, and those are wonderful promises to hold on to. But again, that's only one part of God's nature. Psalm 7 deals with the righteousness, the holiness, the justice of God. Those are themes we don't typically gravitate toward, but we should. I challenge you if you're in a secondhand bookstore somewhere on vacation and you come across an old hymnal, I'm talking from 150 years ago, look through it. First of all, there is so much theology in those old hymnals. One pastor in a given area, I think it was Spurgeon, the clergy was dirt poor. They didn't have books to study the word with. So he started like a, a lending library. And, and a lot of times they couldn't get enough scriptures to give these pastors. So they would give them, if they couldn't give them a Bible they had run out or something, they'd give them an old hymnal. Because those hymnals taught so much theology, pastors could actually teach theology or doctrine from those hymnals. Today, turn on Christian radio, see how much theology you get. It's all feelings, it's all, you know, this and that. Not all of it, but you understand. But just look at those old hymnals and see how much they talked about God's righteousness, His holiness, His coming judgment. Why did they include those things in those hymnals? Why did they sing about those things? Because they were in the Word of God and they honored the Word by being faithful to all of it. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Not just the loving verses, but the ones that kick me in the rear and say, Look, don't take sin lightly. God doesn't. And there is coming a day when He is going to bring judgment upon the unbelieving world. And we need to understand that and make sure that we're always in a right relationship with him through his son, right? Let me just say this to you. Right now, God is restraining his wrath by his great love and mercy. As Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, 9, not willing that any should perish in hell, but that all should have everlasting life, right? All should come to repentance and have everlasting life. 
And yet the anger of God against sin is growing day by day. Like a volcano that is building up pressure one day, God's anger, God's wrath is going to erupt. And then his wrath against sin will no longer be restrained. It's going to be released. When? We've been studying it for many months. Revelation 6 through 19. Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Now you know this as well as I do. Most people comfort themselves. I'm talking about unbelievers now. Comfort themselves with the knowledge that God is love. God is love and surely a God of love won't send anyone to hell except the worst of humanity. The Hitlers and the Stalins, you know, uh, people that are brutal dictators and mass murderers. But certainly he won't send a good person like me to hell. Well, that's actually something God said in his word. Uh, Proverbs 6, uh, 20, verse 6. Every person proclaims each his own goodness. Isn't that true? Everyone's a good person. Except a mass murderer or, you know, an evil dictator. But, but certainly the average American thinks they're, they're good people. All right? Romans 3. Why don't you turn there? Romans 3. Every man, every woman proclaims their own goodness. Romans 3, verse 10. Paul said, but the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. No one does good because no one is good, not a single person. And then look at Romans 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What exactly does this mean? What is sin from a biblical point of view? Can I ask you, first of all, to please be patient? If you're a regular here, you have heard me talk about this many times over the years. And you're going to hear me talk about it many more times over the coming years until Jesus comes for his church. But we always have people that are tuned in, watching uh, the study on, on the computer, live streaming it. So some of these people may not have ever heard it presented this way. Not that I present it so great, but I've tried to, to touch on all the points that we need to touch on on this subject, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What exactly does that mean? And what is the biblical point of view with regard to sin? Well, as we have said before, the word in the Greek is lit literally means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. It was an archery term for hitting the bullseye on a target. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned, or in other words, all have missed the mark. Of course, the next question is, what does the mark or the bullseye represent? Well, Paul gives us the answer later on in verse 23 of Romans 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what is the glory of God? The glory of God is his sinless perfection. In that regard, every person who has ever lived has fallen short of sinless perfection. Every person except Jesus, of course. Or to put it another way, the sinless perfection that Paul is referring to in Romans 3.23 is perfectly keeping the law of God. That's the context, okay? All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. They missed the mark. What is the mark of sinless perfection? Or to put it another way, it's the sinless perfection of keeping God's law perfectly. Guys, in the Old Testament, God's law contained 613 commandments to break any one of them was to miss the mark and be guilty of sin to be a sinner but let's not deal with all 613 although i'm tempted to let's not deal with all 613 many of them applied to israel specifically their civil laws their ceremonial laws let's just focus on what the theologians call the moral law of god's law okay and for that, we look to the ten most commonly known 
of God's commandments. The Ten Commandments, right? By the way, they are the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. And again, I'm asking for patience because you've heard me, heard me use this illustration before. But these commandments are like the wooden boards that make up the hull of a ship. The ship being your life sailing to heaven. If that's the final destination you want to someday reach. Not everybody does. There's a lot of churchgoers who they're sailing along going to church, you know, and keeping the sacraments and, and lighting candles and doing whatever religious folks do, uh, fully convinced they are heaven-bound. But God's commandments are like the boards that make up a, the hull of a ship. And it doesn't matter if most of the boards are there and intact. If only one is missing or broken... That ship is not going to make it to its final destination. That ship is going to sink. And the same is true for those for the person who chooses to get to heaven by the law, by keeping God's commandments. It doesn't matter if they keep most of them. If any commandment is broken even once, that person is sunk. They're condemned. God said it in his word. Turn to James 2. Oh, but I keep most of the commandments... Uh, sorry, that's not good enough. Oh, I can't believe that. I'm a good person. I, I keep most of the commandments. Well, that's a lie, I'm sure. But okay, let's just give it to you and say you keep most of them. Here's what James said, James 2, verse 10. For, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, listen, he, she, is guilty of breaking all. Isn't that interesting? God said if you break just one commandment, your entire life, in the eyes of God, you have shattered all of them. In what way? In that now they can't get you to heaven. Because to get to heaven by keeping the law, you have to keep it perfectly. That's why Paul calls the law a curse. It's because it takes it makes salvation dependent upon a person keeping all of it without fail to get to heaven. In other words, the law demands, listen, moral perfection. Moral perfection from a person to gain access into heaven. And remember when Jesus said uh, what Jesus said on the subject, it isn't just outward actions, the outward actions of your life that God looks at. It's also the inward thoughts of your heart. Remember Matthew 5, verses 21 to 30. If outwardly you've never committed adultery, but you have lusted after women in your heart, in the eyes of God, you've already committed adultery. Or if you've never physically murdered somebody, but in your heart you've hated them, in the eyes of God, you're already guilty of breaking that law. You are a murderer in the eyes of God. Paul the Apostle, when he was giving his testimony in the book of Romans, said, and I'm paraphrasing. He said, here's what did it for me, or did it to me. All my life I grew up as a Pharisee. All my life I had meticulously kept all the laws of God much as I could. And of course they were all outward. Thou shalt not steal, or commit adultery, or lie, or murder, right? Those are all outward sins. And Paul, as a rabbi and a Pharisee, evaluating his life, said, well, I've never done any of that. Then he said, one day I focused on that 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. And I realized that that commandment took place in the heart. That wasn't an outward commandment. That was something that, yes, God said he looks at the outward actions of our lives, but in this 10th commandment, it, it was God saying, but I also look at the inward attitudes of your heart. And just because the outward actions, you've never robbed a bank or committed adultery or killed anybody. If inside your heart you have lusted and had greed and hatred, in the eyes of God, you're, you have violated the law. And Paul said, when I realized that the law wasn't just outward, it was also inward, it slayed me. I was wiped out. It killed me. And that's when I began to reexamine my entire life. Some people think it could have happened when Paul was as young as 13 and was bar mitzvahed. 
because they'd have to go over the law and memorize the law and meditate on the law. It could have been as early as that, that God was working on him. I don't know. But people don't realize this. I mean, we have such a shallow view of Christianity in our country. Uh, we have so many celebrity pastors that are just all about bringing people into the, into the church that a lot of them don't really give the whole counsel of God. They don't really teach the Bible in its entirety, what we would call the good, the bad, the ugly. There's nothing bad in God's word, but bad with regard to our lives because it nails us. You know, the worship, uh, the uh, evangelism team, some of them are present tonight. The evangelism team, and maybe you've experienced this, I know I have. When I would go up to a person and ask them if they were to die tonight, would God let them into heaven? And they will, will almost always say to me, yes. Almost always. And when I ask them to explain why, oh, they respond, because I'm a good person. Well, I know I'm not perfect morally speaking, but I still think I'm good enough to get into heaven. I just wish they would read the New Testament, especially the words of Jesus and, and Paul. Listen to what God's word is saying. If you're not morally perfect, you're not good enough to get into heaven. Rich young ruler runs up to Jesus one day. Rabbi, what must I, uh, he said, good master, I should say. What must I do to have eternal life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? There is none good but God. Oh, careful now. Skeptics jump on that and say, well, there, Jesus is claiming not to be God. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. I'm not God. Well, yeah, he could have been saying that. Do you think that's what he was saying? Of course not. The alternative is, why are you calling me good? Only God is good. Do you recognize my divinity? That's the right exchange. Why do you call me good? There is none good but God. Not there is not many good but God, because then we'd all say, yeah, I'm one of them. There is none good but God. And there Jesus is defining good or goodness as moral perfection. Moral perfection. So when a person says, I know I'm not morally perfect, but I still think I'm good enough to get into heaven, you're not good. Because unless you're morally perfect like God, you're not good. And therefore, God won't accept you into heaven. Guys, it's, and you know this, I, I know you do. It's, it's all or nothing. It's either sinless perfection or you're guilty. There is no I'm good enough or I'm better than most so I think I deserve heaven. As somebody has said it's either sinless perfection or eternal rejection. God rejecting you for eternity if you're not perfect. Again, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned, all have missed the mark, and fall short of the glory of God, fall short of sinless perfection. Chapter 6, verse 23, And the wages of, of sin is death. And there the context is the second death or eternal punishment in hell, the lake of fire. And, 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 you know, many at this point would be thinking to themselves, no one could live a life of sinless perfection. That's ridiculous. That's not true. First of all, one man did. His name is Jesus. And the Bible teaches that if we put, we put our faith in him, in Jesus Christ, he will put his righteousness to our account so that we get to heaven through him, through what he did. He was the sinless lamb of God who died to take away our sins. He was the only man who ever lived a perfectly sinless life, went to the cross to die for sinners because the guilty can't die for sinners. Guilty can't die for the guilty. It takes the sinless or the righteous to die for sinners. And that would be Jesus Christ. And only Jesus Christ who said in John 14, 6, nobody comes to the Father except through me. So we all understand that, right? But guys, that, that, all of that's been the bad news. Okay? All of that's been the bad news. We are in trouble as the human race. Okay? Please, don't approach God in church lighting the candles and praying the rosaries and working in the soup kitchen, which I'm not against, 
But, you know, don't, don't go, you know, working your way up to God and telling him, Lord, aren't you lucky to have me in your, on your team kind of a thing. We are, well, as somebody once said, mankind has fallen and we couldn't get up. And so it took God to condescend, leave his throne in heaven, come down to where we are to lift us up by dying for our sins that we might have the righteousness of Christ through faith, which will get us into heaven, not our works at all, because we don't have any good works apart from Christ. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. The Hebrew is very graphic, like used menstrual cloths. A woman in her monthly period was considered unclean. That's how God views all of our... See what I did for you today, God? Look at this, how many times I went to church. You're going to be candles I lit. Uh, this and that, Lord. Look at me. Aren't you blessed to have me on your team? And God just shakes his head. You have not read my word. You are ignorant. And I'm cutting you some slack because my grace is all about giving you time to repent. But if you don't, enlighten yourself the jews paul said romans 10 they had a zeal for god but not according to knowledge they didn't know that they had god's word but they never really most of them never figured out what god was saying way back in genesis genesis 15 verse 6 abraham what believed god and it was accounted to him for righteousness faith uh, believing in christ allows god to give us christ's righteousness that's how we get that and we know that right but again that's all the bad news romans 6 23 gives us the good news for the wages of sin is death but the gift of god is eternal life through jesus christ our lord john 3 16 for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in jesus would not have to perish in hell but would have everlasting life it's a gift right for by grace you have been saved through faith that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not the result of your good hard works, lest any should get to heaven and boast, I deserve to be here. And for those people who read John 3.16 and go, for God so loved the world. See, God's a God of love. He, won't, he really won't send anyone to hell. A lot of folks who are putting all their hope and trust in the fact that God's a God of love. The rich young ruler, we talked about, right? He came, comes to Jesus, and Jesus engages Christ in a conversation, and Jesus basically tells him that you're wealthy, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, then come follow me, and you'll have riches in heaven beyond your wildest dreams. And he went away sorrowful, right? Because he had great wealth. And guys, let me just, can I just say this? A lot of Christians read that and go, well, that's a universal principle to all people, all Christians. We've got to sell everything, live in poverty, because only then can we go to heaven. That's ridiculous. It's a lot of rich people in, in the Bible. Abraham, Solomon, David, uh, many others, Joseph of Arimathea. A lot of wealthy people. The issue is not money. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. I know a lot of godly people who are wealthy give their money to the work of God all the time. God bless them. But only in Mark's gospel, after this young man turned away, turned and walked away, we, we, do we read the words, Jesus loved him. That might have happened before he walked away. He comes to Jesus. I think it's before they started to talk. And Mark says this only. Jesus loved him. But he didn't save him. Because God's love can't save us. God's love has never saved anybody. All God's love, to do, love can do, and I mean that reverently, all God's love can do. It's a big deal. God's love can't save us. God's love has never saved anyone. All God's love can do is provide a way by which people can be saved. That becomes up to us that if we want to receive that gift of grace or not. It's up to us. A lot of folks refuse to repent of their sins and get their life right with God by receiving Jesus as their Savior. And if they wind up going to hell, you can't blame God, who did everything in his power short of forcing you into heaven, 
Oh, but he does that. Sorry. I know there are some wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ who believe God forces some into heaven and reprobates others to hell without any free will on their part because they have none. I completely and thoroughly reject that. Otherwise, all the invitations of the, in the Bible would be hypocrisy. Oh, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. If free will is not a real thing, then that would be a statement of hypocrisy. That statement implies free will. If you invite me over to your house this Friday for dinner, I can either accept or I can reject it, right? That's implied in the invitation. If you say to me, I want you at my house for dinner this Friday night, and I'm going to send over armed guards to drag you out of your house whether you like it or not, that would not be an invitation. That would be a summons. It's so ridiculous. I, I'm sorry. I, I love those in Calvinism and Reformed. I, I love them. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. Many of them are tremendously committed Christians. I just don't agree with the theology. It's an invitation, which you can either accept by faith or reject. Turn to John 3. Let's read verses 16 and 17 again, and we'll close. I know we just read verse 16. You all memorize it. I'm sure you have, but let's read it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him and Jesus should not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. Verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Can I just end by saying this? God didn't create you for hell. He created us to live with him, to live with God for eternity in heaven. That's what God, why God made us. He created hell for the devil and his angels. He created heaven for those that would come to him and become part of his family. And he wants the whole world to do that. I mean, John said, 1 John chapter 2, that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. That's a fancy word that simply means what he did on Calvary's cross satisfied God's righteousness, his justice, his holiness. And that opened the way for God now to show us mercy and grace. For God so loved the world that he, uh, Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. But just so we didn't miss understand not for our sins only but also for the sins of the whole world it wasn't just the disciples those that jesus said you haven't chosen me i have chosen you right jesus death on calvary's cross it literally paid for the sins of the entire world everyone who has ever lived now does that mean the entire world is going to be saved no because we have to reach out and receive it by faith it's a gift. You either accept a gift or you reject a gift. The whole world could be saved. There's enough grace to go around. I mean, Jesus Christ will never uh, have somebody come to him and he'll look on a list of something. Well, we ran out of grace last week. I I'm sorry. Uh, you can't, you know, we can't accept you. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. That's what Paul said. So God didn't create you for hell. He created you to spend eternity with him in heaven, but you must decide where I am going to spend eternity. It's up to you. It's your choice. We'll leave it at that. We will pick it up next time. Next week is our fast, week of fasting and prayer. So we'll come back to this, our study in Revelation the week after, uh, as we start with verse 7. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us as you do for giving us your son to die in our place because of the great love wherewith you loved us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were a willing sacrifice. You said, nobody takes my life from me by force. I give it freely for the sheep. And we thank you, Lord, 
that in heaven when we stand around your throne, all we will be doing is praising you. We're not going to be patting each other on the back, what a great people we were, person we were and how we deserve to be in heaven. We will all be standing there as unworthy sinners saved by grace. And it's all going to be about praising you. And I look forward to that. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to bless uh, our week of fasting and prayer next week. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.